Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 453, recorded on Sunday, December 18th, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey, and Rachel is out this week, so filling in for her is returning guest to the show, uh, my friend Justin Legrand down in New Orleans area in Louisiana. Justin, welcome back to the program. How you doing, Bill? So, Justin, before we get into it, uh, this week is going to cover a topic that is close to where you grew up, down in sugar country in Louisiana. I think a lot of people who are not from Louisiana might not necessarily be aware that there was that much sugar there, uh, even to uh, recent times. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that before we start uh, our historical review. So I usually joke about the part of Louisiana where I grew up in St. John Parish, that particular town being between the river and the sugarcane field. My sister lived in a subdivision that literally you could walk out of her house, walk up about 150, 200 feet and pull up a stalk of sugarcane if you wanted one. Also, the part of the state we're going to specifically talk about in um, Thibodeau, Louisiana, is along Highway 90. And that section of the state, even now, you drive along that section of the state, it's nothing but sugarcane fields for acres and acres, miles and miles. So this is definitely an important export in this city. Um, One of my nephews works at a sugar refinery, matter of fact, right now. So still a yeah. big industry there, in other words, it's huge industry. Absolutely. All right, so that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today and that region. And we're going to get really detailed on uh, the, the background context there, understanding that industry and also what specifically happened. So this week's episode is about the Thibodeau, Louisiana massacre of November 1887 during the Knights of Labor sugar plantation strike. This topic ties together a bunch of different themes that we've explored in past episodes of the show. It marks a key moment in the decline and fall of the Knights of Labor. It highlights the difficulties of organizing workers in the post-Civil War American South. It demonstrates the monopolistic and brutal power of the sugar industry. And it serves as a reminder that, contrary to some later revisionism, late 19th century organized labor did make serious attempts to organize more than just white American workers or European immigrants, but that these efforts were beaten back with extreme lethal force. Which I think is worth remembering because it's easy to say, oh, they didn't try. It's like, no, they tried and they were very violently suppressed. And that was one reason that it failed in a way that it did not fail uh, to the same extent for some of the other worker organizations. So let's talk about the Knights of Labor in the year 1887 uh, when this strike and massacre happened. 
As we've discussed in previous episodes, including most recently the railroad strikes of 1886 and 1888, the Knights of Labor's attempts to build a mass organization of working class union power in the United States since 1869 had suddenly taken off in the 1880s, only to crash back to earth. Membership grew from the low tens of thousands into the high hundreds of thousands and then evaporated almost as quickly as defeats mounted and the organizations of capital worked to divide the working classes against themselves once again. Today, some of their historical composition and legacy is misrepresented. For example, even the opening paragraph of the Wikipedia article describes the organization as, quote, the first mass organization of the white working class of the United States, end quote. In reality, the organization included black workers in leadership positions and was making active efforts to organize black workers in both mixed racial industries like the railroads and black belt areas of the rural and urban south. As we'll see in today's context, the agricultural sector in Gulf Coast states like Louisiana was one area of focus, which makes sense because Louisiana was more Catholic than some parts of the South, and the Knights of Labor on the whole tended to skew Catholic nationally. But by 1887, the Knights of Labor was on the downswing again. The strikes they organized in Louisiana's sugar plantations were well-timed, well-planned, and well-organized. They focused on salient, narrow, and clear demands. Potentially, this could have represented a promising new avenue for growing the organization and developing a wider struggle among American workers. Unfortunately, the strikes were violently suppressed and the Knights continued their downward spiral. So now we need to talk about the state of the sugar industry in 1887 especially. In episode 376 from May 2021, we discussed the refined sugar industry in the United States, which was arriving at a major turning point at the time of the plantation strikes in Louisiana. By 1887 specifically, almost the entire production of refined sugar in the United States was controlled by a single sugar trust, the Sugar Refineries Company, later known as the American Sugar Refinery Company. As we covered in that episode, according to an article, The American Sugar Refinery Company, 1887-1914, to The Story of a Monopoly, by Richard Zerby, in the Journal of Law and Economics, Volume 12, Number 2, October 1969, the trust was not formed due to excessive competition and overproduction of refined sugar, that was the situation in some other industries, but rather due to the beneficial economies of scale of the larger sugar operations and their ability to adopt new and more profitable technologies faster because of their ability to muster more investment capital faster. The concentration of companies involved in sugar refining fell from 52 to 24 from the period of 1867 to 1887. Refineries and the Refined Sugar Trust represented the modern industrialized side of the sugar business, but in fact, over the same period, there had also been consolidation and cartelization on the agricultural side at the raw sugarcane production level of the supply chain. Duncan F. Kenner, formerly the Confederacy's leading envoy to Europe, was an ultra-wealthy Louisiana planter, worth millions at the time, and also involved in cotton, and he had founded the Louisiana Sugar Producers Association, the LSPA, back in 1877. This trade group represented the interests of the 200 largest sugar plantation owners in the state of Louisiana. This mattered a great deal on a national level because 95% of all non-imported U.S. sugar was being grown in Louisiana in the mid-1870s, according to a 2017 article in the Smithsonian Magazine that we'll be referring to again later. The LSPA was partly a lobbying group at the federal level and to the state government, seeking favorable trade policy or infrastructural investments in levies and so on. 
but they were also a source of pooled funding toward research and development and a coordinating force for acting in unison to suppress wages and deprive workers of their rights. Quoting from the Wikipedia article on the massacres, quote, they adopted a uniform pay scale and withheld 80% of the wages until the end of the harvest season in order to keep the workers on the plantations through the end of the season. They ended the job system. The largest planters who maintained stores required workers to accept pay in scrip, redeemable only at their stores, end quote. We will circle back to some of these points in just a few minutes, but that gives you a sense of the sort of 10-year period leading up to the events of 1887. So again, the uh, LSPA, which is representing the largest growers, is founded in 1877 by Kenner. And although Kenner died 10 years later, shortly before the strikes of 1887, it is worth zooming in on him to understand the situation the workers faced. As we discussed in episode 358 in March 2021, One of the trends in southern plantations, even before the American Civil War, had been consolidation and technologization, just like in the heavy industry. Sugar had been a particular point of interest for the early Industrial Revolution because of how much physical labor was required. Capital investments, like Kenner's early sugarcane plantation railroad, for example, later a staple of the sugar growing process, did not reduce the reliance on agricultural laborers, but instead dramatically increased the productivity and profits they could each be forced to produce, just like with the cotton gin. It is appropriate to say they were forced to produce these eye-watering economic gains for the landowners like Duncan Kenner, because he owned 600 slaves before the war, and he certainly figured out how to keep them toiling under their post-war status of theoretical freedom. Not even the confiscation of his property and the liberation of his slaves during the war, due to his high political status in the Confederate government, prevented him from regaining his plantation empire within a matter of years after the war. Keeping ex-slaves working while freed seems to have been a particular specialty for Kenner because he was an early advocate inside the Confederate government for abolishing slavery as a diplomatic tactic to win the war, despite the entire purpose of the war being to preserve slavery, because he had apparently concluded that the official practice of slavery was not actually necessary to the operations of a savvy major plantation owner. Technology and new mechanisms of control, which we'll talk about, could produce the same effective result as slavery. 1880s Gulf Coast sugar growers would have been, tariffs aside, in direct economic competition with nearby Cuba and to a lesser extent Puerto Rico, both at the time part of the Spanish Empire. This was one of the major battlefields in trade tariff policy in this period. But this competition was also often held up as an explanation for the seemingly never-ending insistence on lowering wages on American sugar plantations. Cuba had only abolished slavery the year before, in 1886. Some of the worst slavery conditions in the world had been an integral part of Cuba's sugar plantation economy for centuries, and the landowners replaced it with contracted immigrant labor that could be de facto treated as slaves anyway, with little ability to advocate for themselves. And as always, the sources throughout this will be available at a PDF posted at arsenalfordemocracy.com. In this case, I'm quoting from uh, Cuban papers at Brown University's library. As in the United States, while industrial mechanization might have allowed sugar plantations to reduce their reliance on horrifically brutal forced labor by slaves or indentured workers, instead it merely allowed early adopters in agri-capitalism to extract more profits per worker. 
Obviously, sugar was an integral part of the transatlantic triangle trade earlier, since the start of the 1500s, and that relied heavily on some of the most intolerable slave conditions in the world, and that unfortunately continued in various countries much later. Cuba's sugar elite was noted for its enthusiastic adoption of new sugar technologies to get more profit out of its slave workforce, and then their indentured workforce beginning in the late 1880s. Again, it must be emphasized that after the abolition of slavery in the various sugar-producing countries of the world, slave labor on sugar plantations was generally immediately replaced by harsh indentured servitude that probably only barely qualifies as not being slavery and assumes a level of genuine understanding of contracts that many workers, especially colonized or subjugated populations, probably lacked when they signed those agreements. As we will discuss, it was certainly true in the United States that many nominally free workers had little choice but to remain in the sugar fields, whether they wished to or not. It was already routine by this point for state governments to lease convict forced labor brigades, predominantly black and usually imprisoned on trumped-up charges, to plantation owners during harvest seasons, especially if there was any hint of the ostensibly free workers trying to exercise any power or resistance against the plantation owners. This was implemented under the Exception Clause of the 13th Amendment, although it had been pioneered earlier in northern factories as we explored in episode 317. Some post-Civil War southern prisons were literally built on the site of former plantations that had not been restored to their former private ownership. As a side note to further round out our contemporary context for the events of this episode, it is probably worth observing as well that 1887 was also the year of the Bayonet Constitution in the Kingdom of Hawaii, where sugar plantation owners forced through a new constitution at gunpoint against the king, just a few years before completely overthrowing the monarchy and seeking U.S. annexation. Now Justin is going to tell us about some of the mechanisms of control which were used to keep these workers working even after the end of slavery on these sugar plantations. All right. Um, now, company housing and company stores in, Louis- in Louisiana's sugar plantation region. In the decade since the LSPA had been established, sugar field workers and cane juice processors had fought back year after year against the plantation owners and their unfair labor practices and exploitations. One of the biggest objections was to the company store system. While Great Britain was busy continuing to pass more and more laws banning the use of company script and the company stores, the United States was seeing it proliferate more than ever. In some industries, like mining and logging, the workers were pretty cut off from the rest of civilization and especially vulnerable to abuse of being paid a small amount for their work in a company currency, token or ticket that could only ever be redeemed at an on-site store with outrageous prices so that they could never take any wages off the site and into the real world. But in the South, agricultural workers were often fairly close to real towns with real stores and still they could often only receive pay in company script redeemable at company stores. This did not just keep them poor with no savings or ability to build wealth, and it did not just keep them nominally used for wages within the corporation, but it also ensured a de facto state of serfdom since any money they earned could never be spent anywhere else. 
the best case scenario for company script would allow a worker to trade script for real money in some fashion. But this script was not exactly in high demand, and the exchange value would be pretty bad. In many cases, exchange for real money was simply not allowed. By 1887, the Knights of Labor had determined that this was probably the single most, most obvious and clear-cut issue they could organize plantation workers around. And this would become a central focus of the big strike. Agitating around the company script issue helped recruit thousands of new members to the Knights of Labor. Company housing was another problem for the workers in Louisiana sugar plantation region. Obviously, this was something a lot of workers across the U.S. faced in this era, especially in the tent cities in mining country, which were always vulnerable to being cleared out if any workers tried to organize a walkout or any other action to advocate for themselves. But in plantation country, on-site company housing was also a direct legacy of antebellum slave housing for quality of the housing, or ramshackle home often located on the sites of decades or centuries of horror and misery. Many families probably had never left in the nearly 25 years since Union occupation. Thibodeau's surrounding parishes, by the way, were explicitly excluded by name from the Emancipation Proclamation of 1862, despite being, or in fact, because they were already under Northern military control. When the Louisiana Constitution of 1864 abolished slavery, the plantation owners with U.S. Army consent immediately implemented a draconian system of one-year labor contracts and a serfdom-style prohibition on freedom of movement, according to a 2021 article in the Lafayette Daily Advertiser. Debt as an instrument of control and servitude. Another way to keep supposedly free workers under control in an industry that relied upon incredibly harsh physical exploitation of workers was debt servitude. The company kept the books both for payroll and company stores. They could advance paycheck money for a fee, offer pay later store credit for a fee, and provide other loans to workers for a fee. Sometimes they would simply invent fees and debts, daring the worker to prove them liars and do something about it. Many agricultural workers had limited literacy, let alone legal representation. But even when the debts were not completely fabricated, they were constructed intentionally to be easy to fall into and impossible to escape from. Until these debts were repaid, a worker had to remain contracted to the plantation or risk imprisonment and probably ending up back on the same plantation in chains anyway. It is worth noting that sharecropping was not a significant feature of southern sugar plantations, unlike nearby cotton plantations. 
because as we have discussed, the sugar industry favored consolidation of capital into fewer and fewer hands for economy of scale. Whereas sharecropping, while a highly effective means of control of workers through debt and tenancy relationships, was more of a neo-feudal relationship that was viable with small outputs from individuals or families. Sugar plantations were striving to be bigger and more unified as modern corporate entities, which trapped wage laborers, as opposed to nominally semi-independent smallholders or tenant farmers. Sugar plantations wanted standardized and regularized production. Not everyone doing their own thing on their own parcels of plots. Equipment was owned by the company, not sold or rented to the workers. And sugarcane is planted via stem cuttings from existing stalks, not through seeds that could be sold to workers. Sugar workers were performing repetitive, uniform tasks as if they were machines themselves, rather than assigning themselves work and figuring out how best to do it. In all of these senses, sugar plantation workers, although working outdoors in agriculture, were recognizably similar in position and daily life to experiences of wage laborers in manufacturing factories, railroads, logging camps, and mountain miners all across the rest of the United States. And that made them a prime candidate for traditional union organizing ahead of tenant farmers, who would also later be organized by other groups. And it is also key to note that these sugar plantation workers were overwhelmingly black in the vicinity of 90%, which was not the case among sharecropping tenant farmers, which very quickly came to absorb a significant number of poor white farmers after the Civil War. All right. Narrative of the events of the 1887 strikes on major Louisiana sugar plantations and its violent suppression at Thibodeau and other nearby locations which left at least 35 dead, but likely more than twice that, with possibly hundreds never accounted for. And this is, uh, this information is coming from the Wikipedia article related to the Thibodeau Massacre. In 1887, the Knights of Labor organized a major three-week sugar strike against cane plantations in Lafouche, Terrebonne, St. Mary, and Assumption Parishes. Most plantations were idle. The strikes was organized by the National Knights of Labor Organization, who had established local assembly 8404 in Shriver the preceding year. The media in the area for white people quickly built a narrative that would be used to justify extraordinary lethal force being used to end the strikes. A New Orleans newspaper reported for three weeks past, the Negro women of the town had been making threats to the effect that if the white men resorted to arms, they would burn the town and end the lives of the white women and children with their cane knives. Similarly, in the days leading up to the climactic event in Thibodeau, it was reported that some of the colored women 
made open threats against the people and the community, declaring they would destroy any house in the town and that not a few of the Negroes boasted that in case of a fight was made, they were fully prepared for it. After the event, one Thibodeau newspaper repeated the claim that prior to November 23rd, Negroes were in motion and their women boasted that they were ready to fire the town. The white editor of the Lafouche Star newspaper, who participated in the killings, also offered this attempt at justification for the severity of the vigilante committee's response. The loudmouth wenches must bear in mind that though they have a tongue, they are not privileged to make use of such threats as burning the town, slaughtering the whites from the cradle to the grave, etc. In addition to the random innocent civilians or ordinary workers killed or wounded by paramilitary violence to suppress the strike, historian James K. Hogue, author of Uncivil War, Five New Orleans Street Battles and the Rise and Fall of, the Ra of Radical Reconstruction, believes that Knights of Labor organizers were systemically targeted for disappearances and presumably murder and unmarked burial elsewhere. From the Smithsonian article that we had discussed earlier in the episode, November 21st, 2017 Smithsonian Magazine account of the narrative draws heavily from the book The Thibodeau Massacre, Racial Violence, and the 1887 Sugarcane Labor Strike by retired local journalist John DeSantis, who has spurred the organization of various memorial efforts and further research. Across the states of the former Confederacy, whites viewed organized labor as agitation that threatened the emerging Jim Crow order. Even in the North and Midwest, the Knights fought an uphill battle against authorities who sided with railroad mine owners. Several states called out militias to break strikes during the late 19th century, but the Knights were at its peak of popularity during the 1880s. Sugar workers had advantages that their counterparts in cotton areas lacked. Planters needed their labor, and growers living on thin margins failed to attract migrant laborers to replace local workers, especially in the crucial rolling season when the sugarcane needed to be cut and pressed in short order. In Louisiana, the Knights organized sugar workers into seven locals of 100 to 150 members each. Hamp Keys joined former black leaders like ex-sheriff William Kennedy. In August of 1887, the Knights met with the St. Mary branch of the Louisiana Sugar Planters Association asking for improved wages. And again, the growers refused. So the Knights raised the stakes in October of 1887 as rolling season approached. Junius Bailey, a 29-year-old schoolteacher, served as local president in Terrebonne. His office sent a communique all over the region asking for $1.50 a day cash wages 
and local workers' committees followed up, going directly to growers with the same demand. But instead of bargaining, growers fired union members. Planters like future Supreme Court Justice Edward Douglas White kicked workers off the land, ordering any who stay arrested. As the cane ripened, growers called on the governor to use muscle against the strikers. And Samuel D. McHenry, a Democratic governor and former planter, obliged, calling for assistance from several all-white Louisiana militias under the command of ex-Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard. One group toted a 45 caliber Gatling gun, a hand-cranked machine gun, around two parishes before parking it in front of the Thibodeau Courthouse. An army cannon was set up in front of the jail. Then the killing started. In St. Mary, the Atacapas Rangers joined a sheriff's posse facing down a group of black strikers. When one of the workers reached into a pocket, posse members opened fire on the crowd, and four men were shot dead where they stood, a newspaper reported. Terror broke the strike in St. Mary Parish. In neighboring Terrebonne, some small growers came to the bargaining table, but larger planters hired strike breakers from Vicksburg, Mississippi, 200 miles to the north, promising high wages and bringing them down on trains. The replacement workers were also African-American, but they lacked experience in the cane breaks. As they arrived, militiamen evicted strikers, and Thibodeau in Lafouche Parish was becoming a refuge for displaced workers. Some moved into vacant houses in town, while others camped along bayous and roadsides. The reports circulated of African-American women gossiping about a planned riot. Violence broke out in nearby Lockport on Bayou Lafouche when Moses Pugh, a black worker, shot and wounded Richard Foray, a planter, in self-defense. A militia unit arrived and mounted a bayonet charge on gathered workers, firing a volley in the air. In Thibodeau, Lafouche Parish District Judge Taylor Battier declared martial law. Despite being a Republican, Battier was an ex-Confederate and White League member. He, mem he authorized local white vigilantes to barricade the town, identifying strikers and demanding passage from any African-American coming or going. And before dawn on Wednesday, the 23rd of November, Pistol shots coming from a cornfield injured two white guards. The response was a massacre. There were several companies of white men, and they went around night and day shooting colored men who took part in strike, said Reverend T. Jefferson Rhodes of the Moses Baptist Church in Thibodeau. Going from house to house, gunmen ordered Jack Conrad, a Union Civil War veteran, his son Grant, and his brother-in-law, Marceline, out of their house. 
Marcelin protested. He was not a striker, but was shot and killed anyway. As recounted in John DeSantis' book, Clarice Conrad watched as her brother Grant got behind a barrel and the white man got behind the house and shot him dead. Jack Conrad was shot several times in the arms and chest. He lived and later identified one of the attackers as his employer. One strike leader found in an attic was taken out to the town common, told to run and shot to pieces by a firing squad. An eyewitness told the newspaper that no less than 35 Negroes were killed outright, including old and young men and women. The Negroes offered no resistance. They could not as the killing was unexpected. Survivors took to the woods and swamps. Killing continued on plantation and bodies were dumped in a site that became a landfill. Workers returned to the fields on growers' terms while whites cheered a Jim Crow victory. As mentioned earlier, there was a widespread propaganda campaign to create fear of a potential Haitian Revolution-style massacre against whites near the sugar plantations in order to justify extraordinary reprisals preemptively. The Daily Picayune blamed Black unionizers for the violence, saying that, that they provoked white citizens, suggesting the strikers would burn the town and end the lives of the white women and children with their cane knives. Flipping the narrative, the paper argued it was no longer a question against labor, but one of law-abiding citizens against assassins. This was unsuccessfully countered by more sympathetic media accounts elsewhere. Do the working men of the country understand the significance of this movement? Asked Washington, D.C.'s National Republican, pointing out that sugar workers were forced to work at a starvation wage in the richest spot under the American flag. If forced back to the fields at gunpoint, no wage worker would be safe from employer intimidation. The union died with the strikers, and the assassins went unpunished. There were no federal inquiries, and even the coroner's inquest refused to point a finger at the murderers. Sugar planter Andrew Price was among the attackers that morning. He won a seat in Congress the next year. There were also likely extensive fatalities in nearby Pattersonville, Louisiana, today called Patterson in St. Mary's Parish. Recent commemorations and ongoing official searches for mass graves have taken place. According to an article written by WDSU, the NBC affiliate here in New Orleans, a former newspaper reporter for the Times of Homa Thibodeau who authored the 2016 book about the killings, the Thibodeau Massacre, Racial Violence and the 1887 Sugarcane Labor Strike, put an estimate of the actual number dead at 30 to 60 on the conservative side, DeSantis said, elaborating on his estimate over a virtual interview from his home in New York State. 
He spent over a decade asking questions and collecting documents aided by archivists at Nichols State University. But DeSantis said his work only scratched the surface. He said others have put the death toll over 100. Louisiana Governor Samuel McEnery sent the state's all-white militia and the local judge ordered evictions. A vigilance committee formed who vowed to protect people from the black workers who had organized the strike, DeSantis said. After two white vigilantes were wounded by gunfire, DeSantis said word among the white people spread of an uprising. That's when they began going door to door and, you know, hauling people out that they thought were the leaders of the strike. He said they began shooting people. They began killing people. Now, in addition to DeSantis's research, a number of different entities decided to pay commemorations to what happened during the massacre and strike. And in 2017, according to um, a Homa Today article, Lafouche Parish Councilman Jerry Jones planned to issue a city proclamation to the families of those killed and also asked that Lafouche residents hold a moment of silence at noon on November 23rd to honor the the estimated 30 to 60 victims of the massacre. According to DeSantis, Louisiana's Lieutenant Governor Clay Knobloch had been head of the Lafouche Parish Militia, which was involved in the killings. The city of Thibodeau made a similar proclamation to pay homage to or pay remembrance to those who were killed on September the 5th of 2017. So turning now to an article from May 2017 in The Advocate, quote, descendants of victims of a racial massacre 130 years ago in South Louisiana and descendants of Confederate and plantation families are working together to honor those victims and possibly find their remains. Members of white mobs went door-to-door for more than two hours, shooting unarmed blacks on November 23, 1887. The violence ended a month-long strike by sugar plantation field hands, including many former slaves as well as some whites. Though records are sketchy, they indicate that 30 to 60 people died in the Thibodeau massacre, said John DeSantis, whose book about the incident was published late last year. Local tradition holds that there's a mass grave on the grounds of what's now a Black American Legion chapter. DeSantis and others created the Louisiana 1887 Memorial Committee to raise money for an archaeological survey to learn if that's true, and if it is, to have any remains exhumed, investigated, and buried in consecrated ground. The public was invited to the group's first meeting Thursday night in Thibodeau. The 19 uh, to 20 members included a descendant of Jack Conrad who was shot four times and left for dead, but he survived, and at least one descendant of a local plantation family, DeSantis said. The only investigation of the incident wasn't actually an attempt to bring anyone to task. It was a query in Washington into whether Jack Conrad's wounds entitled him to a pension as a veteran of U.S. colored troops. DeSantis said testimony from that investigation found last year in the National Archives confirms they were shooting every black person in sight and they were pulling people out of houses. Um, Now, Justin, I've just mentioned that there was this uh, archaeological sort of... uh, investigation begun, at least on the kind of testing phase. Um, And there were a few articles from uh, 2018 as that research was beginning. Um, And I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about some of those efforts. Well, 
Um, according to a WWL TV um, article from March 2018, a patch of ground in southern Louisiana is being surveyed to see if it may hold a mass grave from a racial massacre. Devet Gaddison is a graduate student who worked on mass graves. She said she will check the area in Thibodeau on Thursday and Friday um, of March 2018 using ground-penetrating radar and limiting coring. Those could indicate whether digging would likely turn up a mass grave where white mobs are said to have dumped the bodies of African-Americans they killed in 1887. Um, and this is from the Tulanean, which is the student paper at Tulane University. This spring 2018, however, Gaddison, a Tulane School of Liberal Arts graduate student in the Department of Anthropology, stayed right here in southeast Louisiana. Using ground-penetrating radar, she surveyed a site in Thibodeau where a sugarcane labor strike was halted on November 23, 1887. White vigilante had rounded up striking African-American workers, killing many of them. Estimates of the number of workers who were murdered ranged from 30 to 60. The bodies were thrown into one grave. In the decades following the event, the site became the city dump. Gaddison said, now, Gaddison is a consultant of the History Recovery Project, working with a professor from the University of Louisiana Lafayette to decide the next step. From her pending report based on analysis of the ground penetrating radar survey, Gaddison will re recommend if, where, and how to excavate. While surveying the Thibodeau site in May, Gadsden visited a barbershop next to the American Legion building located near the site. The barber told Gaddison that he'd heard for years older people talking about the killing event, which apparently took place in a span of two and a half hours, but he didn't realize that it was actually real, that it actually happened. According to an article from the Homer Times in October of 2018, the area of interest in what has been described by Gaddison as an anomaly, meaning it could indicate a burial site, although that, that is not certain. The report prepared by the scientists states that further investigation would involve not only archaeology, but further historical and ethnographic research. Comprehensive archival and ethnographic research will precede any additional remote sensing or field work. Such archival and ethnographic research could provide additional historical context and more detailed land use information that could greatly facilitate the field work. Recommendations for additional investigation of the Raymond Stafford Post property include further geophysical remote sensing, expanding the survey area to the north and, if possible, to the west and south behind the Post building. Test excavations of the area of interest are also recommended, the report says. Although manual coring was performed in May, the report does not recommend further exploration of that type. 
exploratory test trenches might be placed directly over subsurface anomalies, while systemic test trenches may be excavated along transects oriented from north to south and east to west across the field, the report says. Due to the possibility of encountering human remains, excavations should be preceded by consultations with descendants and community members, as well as application for an unmarked burial permit in accordance with the Louisiana Unmarked Human Burial Sites Preservation Act. That the location of a dump coincides with the place believed to contain a mass burial from the systemic killing of black sugarcane workers is probably not coincidental, the report concludes. Whether intentional or unplanned, the concealment of graves is characteristic of attempts to cover up mass murders and crimes against humanity. While this is not evidence of a mass burial, it is consistent with the silencing of a violent and loathsome act in Louisiana history. So one concluding note about all of this, despite the great difficulties and tragedies of organizing workers in the Deep South in late 19th and early 20th centuries, and despite the decline of the Knights of Labor, the bloody defeat at Thibodeau was far from the last attempt to advance the cause of the workers in the region. In episode 384, which Justin was also a guest on in June 2021, we discussed the far more successful and even more cross-racial New Orleans General Strike of 1892. In 1908 and 1920, as we covered in episode 383, there was a, a racially integrated mine strikes in Alabama uh, in those two years, again featuring the deployment of lethal state force, especially to clear the strikers from company property where they had been living while working in the mines, so a similar feature of that strike. And of course, there's also, as we mentioned earlier, later attempts to organize tenant farmers into unions, which would have included both very poor black workers and also very poor white workers. Now, Justin, before we wrap up, I wanted to give you an opportunity to offer any further reflections on any of the points that we've talked about today. Obviously, this is a pretty challenging topic, um, but one that you know needs to be brought to light, and uh, they are seemingly making those efforts locally now. It's interesting to me that, first of all, thank you for having me on again, Bill. Um, One thing I am noticing with the particular brutality of these strike-breaking efforts is how a lot of this doesn't seem to go away. It just changes. So now we have more modern efforts where employers have been doing, you know, cruel and dehumanizing things as far as wages and the way they've treated their workers and all those things over the in modern times and those those employers while they may not be facing any immediate any immediate consequences the workers are gaining more rights um we saw that with amazon a few years ago where they where amazon workers at different individual plants have been suing and gaining the right to unionize. Um, we've seen that with with companies like Starbucks, where individuals working at star- different stores have be- been able to unionize on a smaller scale. And those things, employers don't necessarily like those things because it means that they have to adhere to 
the rights of these workers and treat these workers fairly. And it's just, while I'm glad that things like this don't happen anymore, I'm glad that I'm sorry to see that people still have to go through what they have to go through to get basic human rights as workers. Now, is this the kind of thing that you had heard about when you were growing up? Because they mentioned that there was some oral tradition here in the communities, but beyond that, people might not have been aware. And even some of those people might have thought it was sort of mythical as opposed to a real event that happened. I just like I told you with the uh, with the general strike of 1892, I had heard nothing of this. Um, I barely knew about the German coast slave revolt where I grew up. So to hear that this happened, I'm not surprised that it happened. Uh, but no, I didn't. This is actually when you approached me about doing about being on. This was the first time I'd heard about this. Mm hmm. Did this change your perspective at all on some of those questions around the legacy of union organizing in this time period and especially in the South? Because as I said in the intro uh, or near the intro, there tends to be a lot of framing today of saying that those unions were only for white people and they didn't make the effort to organize across racial lines and incorporate black workers and so forth. And it, it seems like that's not really true. I mean, this is an example of a, these union locals would have been almost entirely black. And I think we also see the results of that, the consequences of that. Well, I'm glad to say that I had, I had actually, because of, you know, growing up with, I, my aunt was an educator, so she was a part of that union, and my mom was a part of a, a of a strike force, support workers in the school system, uh, when she, when I was a little kid. So I saw the power of, you know, the power of organizing and things like that. And this, knowing that this goes back as far as it does, this tradition of organizing amongst the black community in this country, I'm not really surprised by it i am surprised at the lengths that people go through to kind of quiet the idea that this had been going on for centuries all right well uh that brings us to the end of our time but justin thank you so much for coming on to talk about the uh sugarcane plantation strikes and the thibodeau massacre of 1887 in louisiana it's no problem at all bill i was happy to be here